Good morning again. Today we celebrate the second Sunday of Epiphany, and I think if you squint real hard, today's gospel can feel like an instant replay from last Sunday. With Jesus' baptism still front and center, only this time it's as if John the Baptist is himself doing the play-by-play -play and offering his own commentary, and in the process, casting himself in a lead supporting role. He says, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Now John says this as he recounts the baptism. Now last week, if you remember, it was only Jesus who saw the dove. This week, it's John. Then John is privileged to hear the voice of God, who says, the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now here, if you recall, maybe John twists the story a bit. Last week's reading, made no mention of Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit. Now it makes sense that John, who's basically in the business of baptism, would feature a baptism in this part of Jesus' work. Now you may wonder, why do we have this repetition this week of the kickoff of Jesus' ministry, of his baptism? Wasn't last Sunday enough? I think it's to underscore what Epiphany is doing here at this point. You see, we've spent the better part of the last three weeks focusing on the Incarnation. That is, the fact that God is manifest in the human being, Jesus of Nazareth. And as you'll remember, the Incarnation is a featured element of the Christmas story throughout. God made man a little manger in Bethlehem. The Magi journeyed to celebrate the infant on January 6th, Three Kings Day. I think these past two weeks' emphasis on Jesus' baptism and his adult ministry is to maybe balance the perspective about the Incarnation. Sure, God made man an acute baby in a manger, but God made man as also an adult, baptized by John the Baptist, and set to change the world. You see, in this way, the Incarnation is both a sign of humility and vulnerability and tenderness, and also a sign of strength and power. A 30-year-old Jesus set to start his life-giving ministry on the banks of the Jordan River. There's also a power to this week's retelling of the baptism, because it's John's testimony to what he heard and saw and felt during the baptism. Think of it as an outside source, a confirmation, if you will, of the act that only last week seemed to be confined to Jesus' perspective. Now, the Gospel of John puts great emphasis on the Epiphany and the Incarnation. The very start of the Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, reminds us that the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen His glory. So the Incarnation is front and center. So it makes sense placing John in this supporting role as an affirmation, as a testimony to what happened in the baptism, underscores the Gospel of John's emphasis on the Incarnation. Now you may know that what's called incarnational theology is the idea that God became incarnate, became flesh in Jesus of Nazareth to embody fully God's love for creation. And Teresa of Avila, one of our more famous and beloved medieval mystics, weaves this incarnational theology into our world. 
our activity, our responsibility, our role in creation. In a poem attributed to her, she wrote, Christ has no body now on earth but yours, no hands but yours, no feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which to look out Christ's passion in the world. Yours are the feet with which he is about to go about doing good. Yours are the hands with which he is to bless men and women now. See, it's a wildly popular quote, and parts of it are available in posters or billboards or t-shirts around the world. And it seems to echo the Apostle Paul's own command from 2 Corinthians to always carry in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be visible in our bodies. I have to admit that not too long ago, I would have stood up here and heartily echoed the sentiment of Teresa of Avila and the Apostle Paul. And in fact, my very own prayer I typically use before a hospital stay or a medical procedure kind of repeats this appropriation of the incarnation. I'll say something like, God, let the doctor's hands be your hands. Let the nurse's hands be your hands. Send through them all your healing power of salvation. And it sounds good, and I know I'll probably use some variation of this prayer in the future, but this morning, it strikes me as kind of, well, kind of arrogant. Who are we to think that we can be God's incarnation? To be Jesus' full divinity and full humanity? How dare we? How dare we think that we can be God's hands or God's feet? Now, related to that, there's a bit of church humor that's especially appropriate for us clergy folks to hear this time of year in January, when our minds are busy with preparation for the annual meeting and vestry selection and year beginning staffing and budgets. It's easy to become so caught up in ourselves and our work that we forget the real reason we're here. And this, this bit of humor goes something like, hey, I've got great news for you. Clergy responds, what is it? I want you to know the Messiah has come. Yeah, so I've got even better news for you. What? You're not him. <laughs> this always serves to put us in our place and makes us chill out a bit. We aren't Jesus after all. We need to be reminded. I need to be reminded. It reminds me of those what would Jesus do wristbands proudly worn by adolescents and adults for years, about a decade ago. While well-intentioned, it also carries an underlying arrogance that Paul and Teresa might support. How are we to know what Jesus would do? We're not fully divine, after all. And for many of us, myself included, we are even fully human some of the time. So the risk of this appropriation of the incarnational theology is that we imagine ourselves to be Christ. That if the world is going to be saved, then by God, we'll have to save it. I don't know about you, but that feels kind of familiar. Now, to be fair, I think Teresa and Paul and, and hopefully those who created the What Would Jesus Do bracelets would offer that we aren't called to be Jesus, but we are called to live lives that embody Christ. Christ is the model and the muse for all our actions in the world. And that makes a lot of sense. But it is a slippery slope, you must admit, from embodying Christ to thinking that we're being Christ. Which makes me wonder if this morning's model of witness, of embodiment of the Christ that we see in John the Baptist isn't more appropriate. We're not called to be Christ, but to be a witness 
to Christ. We call attention to Jesus. So they're like, hey, y'all, look. Come and see. God is with us. God is in our midst. As John says, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in that, he goes on, he says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. Here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then later in today's gospel, John repeats this claim. He's walking with two of his disciples, and, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, look, here's the Lamb of God. Now, this is an important movement, I think, because it really kickstarts Jesus' ministry. Immediately, we're told the two disciples heard John say this, and they followed Jesus. Just hearing the proclamation, the testimony, they are sold. They approached Jesus, and he asked them this incredibly tough question. What are you looking for? I mean, that's a powerful yet frightening response. What are you looking for? It's both a question and an examination. What are any of us looking for? Possibly the greatest question of existence right up there with what is the meaning of life? What are you looking for? What are you looking for? Now this weekend, we marked the celebration of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Now you may know that revelations following his death have tarnished the Reverend Doctor's image somewhat. And I imagine he himself would be somewhat embarrassed by his own sainthood, especially being self-conscious of his own faults, as we all are. That said, he left us some powerful ways to answer the question, what are you looking for? And I think no answer is better than in his I Have a Dream speech given 60 years ago this year on the Capitol Mall. He expresses the deep yearning for equality between the races, a yearning as yet still unfulfilled. And in the speech's emotional ending, King states what might be the universal answer to Jesus' question, what are you looking for? King says, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. What are you looking for, for anyone, is a tough question. I think it's interesting that in this morning's gospel, John the Baptist's companions are, they're undeterred by it. They're unafraid. They want to know where Jesus is staying. He shows them and turns, it turns out one of the interlocutors is Andrew, who's the brother of our very own Simon Peter. Now Andrew finds Peter and confidently proclaims, we have found the Messiah. I don't have to tell you what a big deal finding the Messiah is to these young Israelite disciples. Jesus meets Simon Peter and immediately declares him Cephas, rock, upon which we later learn the church will be built. Even before Peter meets him, Jesus, that is the incarnation himself and all his adult glory and divine power, is already at work transforming the disciples before they even know him. And it all starts with John's John the Baptist's testimony, his witness. Here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This morning, I think we are called to be more like John the Baptist. We are called to call attention to God already at work upon us, to God at work in and around creation, knowing as we sit here that Holy Spirit is at work in us and around us and through us. Holy Spirit is transforming everything 
before we notice. Simon Peter becomes Cephas, the rock. John the Baptist proclaims the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Creation is irrevocably altered. And maybe that's the answer we seek when Jesus asks us, what are you looking for? We are looking for him this day and every day. We're looking for him in ourselves, in our neighbor, in the glory of creation all around us. And in finding him, just maybe, in finding him, we find the freedom, the true freedom that Martin Luther King Jr. yearned for 60 years ago. And we respond, hey y'all, come and see. God is with us. God is in our midst. Amen. Amen. <laughs>